Our text is from our gospel reading, Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17. We're going to do a detailed study of this text. I really encourage you to open up a Bible if one is near you, a Bible app on your phone. Uh, And if you're using our church Bibles, Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17, found on page 846, page 846 of our church Bibles. And as you open up God's word, I begin with this. I want you to imagine that you are granted a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And you can ask him one and only one question. What would that question be? about Jesus. <laughs> Trying to recapture the moment. <laughs> what would that question be in that face-to-face encounter with Christ? Now some of you you might have a question that pertains to some of the big theological mysteries of the faith. Jesus, I've always wondered about the Trinity. How can there be one God and yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Please explain. Or it might be about Holy Communion. There's bread and wine. How, Lord Jesus, is it also your true body and blood? For some of you, maybe it's the great question of Jesus, you are all-powerful and you're all-loving. Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Great question. Some of you, it might be a more personal question that you might ask. Jesus, why did such and such of a thing happen to me in my life? All sorts of questions we might have in that moment. Well, there's a man here in Mark chapter 10 He's often referred to as the rich young man or the rich young ruler. And this rich young man, the rich young ruler, comes to Jesus and he asks him perhaps one of the greatest, most important questions anyone could ever ask of God, ask of Christ. He asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a huge question. It's what we would call an ultimate question. Ultimate questions that deal with our origin, you know, where did we come from, or deal with our purpose, why are we here, or our destiny, where are we going, and how can I be sure that I'm going to get there? Jesus, tell me, what must I do to inherit that eternal life? And how Jesus responds to this ultimate question shows us, of course, a lot about Jesus. And his response to that question really shows us what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's all about our relationship with him that we see here. So let's dig in to God's word, Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17. It says, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, 
And I pause there just to remind you of the, the setting, the context. Remember what has happened just before this man uh, arrives. Jesus has been there with the moms and the dads and the little children. That's what the Greek word here, pideon, means in the Greek. It's little children. It's like six months old and, and one and two and three years old, little toddlers that are there. So you see the moms and dads and the little kids, and they're all running around Jesus. Can you see that scene? And it says that just as he was setting out, from that it says on his journey and what's his journey where is he heading to the very next chapter is what's called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem Jesus is on a journey to the cross and as he was setting out on his journey and all those kids running around it says a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life? So a lot of nice details in that scene. Again, the kids all running around, and Jesus is there, and he's heading to Jerusalem. And this man, this rich young ruler, this powerful, wealthy man, high status, he runs up to where Jesus is. There's a sense of urgency in this man. Uh, you know, children of the first century would run around and messengers would run and slaves would run for their masters, but wealthy, powerful, high-status men, Jewish men of the first century didn't run. So this man has an urgency. Uh, there, there, there is a need that he has, though he has all this wealth and power. Perhaps he senses there is something that he is missing, an emptiness within him. He runs up to Jesus, and then it says he kneels before him. Again, this is a powerful, wealthy man, and Jesus is basically a wandering peasant teacher, and yet he kneels before Jesus. So he's showing Jesus this humility before him, at least outwardly, and then it says this adjective he uses to describe Jesus as a teacher. He says, good teacher. Again, showing Jesus great honor and respect in this moment. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's an urgency. Now, if you know Jesus from the Gospels, you know that oftentimes, or most of the times, when he's asked a question, rarely, you know, does he respond with a direct answer. But he's always going to use these kind of moments of a question like this as a teachable moment to show the person, to show the crowds, to show his disciples, and to show all of us 2,000 years later something of huge significance. Jesus oftentimes would respond to a question by asking another question. That's what he does here. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, first of all, Jesus here is not denying his divinity. He's not divine that he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He's not denying his own absolute goodness and holiness. The fact is, Jesus knows that this man, the rich young ruler, doesn't have an inkling of a clue who he really is. 
Again, what did he use to describe Jesus? He was a good teacher. He sees Jesus as a teacher or a religious leader, maybe a prophet, but he has no clue. He is face to face with the incarnate, the enfleshed word of God, God in human form. Has no clue. Why do you call me good? You think I'm just a mere teacher? No one is good, Jesus says, except God alone. Now, that might offend our modern sensibilities to hear Jesus say, no one is good except God. If I were to come up to you after the worship service today, out in the lobby or in the parking lot, trying to get in your car, and I say, you're no good, you might be a little bit or a lot offended by that. And perhaps rightfully so if I were to say that. But I think our modern sensibilities, no one is good. I mean, I think we are so influenced, whether we realize it or not, Christian or not, we're so influenced by a philosophy called humanism. Humanism which says man is the measure of all things. Humanism which says man is at the center. Humanity decides what is true or not true. Humanity decides what is good or not good. It's human beings. It's an anthropocentric view, a man-centered view, rather than a theocentric view, a God-centered view. Humanism, we're so influenced by that. If you were to go to King Supers or Target uh, and stand in the checkout line, and you were to take a quick survey, a poll of the people there and ask them, do you believe human beings are essentially, basically good? I bet you almost every single person in that checkout line would absolutely agree with that statement. Of course, yeah, humans are, are good. There was a poll taken just last year, 2021, by a Christian poll group called the Barna Group, and they asked the question, do you believe, do you agree with this statement that human beings are essentially, basically, in essence, good? And 75% of the people who responded who stated they were Christians, 75% of the Christians said yes. Human beings are in essence good. Maybe many of you are wondering, what's the problem with that, Pastor? Well, the problem is Jesus here says, no one is good except God alone. You might remember Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. I think the problem is, is that if we are to say something is good or something is bad, there has to be some sort of agreed upon standard or some sort of norm that we are using. And usually we as human beings on an average Sunday afternoon or a Monday morning going to work or school, the typical norm or standard we use for what's good or what's bad is looking around at our fellow human beings. And we uh, see the people on the news and they're doing these terrible, horrible things and you can compare yourself to them and you say, well, I'm not like them. I'm one of the good ones. 
and you compare all these bad people you see to your friends you know and family members and people at school, people at your work, people in your neighborhood, and they're not like them either. And so basically, in comparison to that, we're pretty good. But the standard or the norm that God uses is not a fallen, finite, sinful, defiled, human perspective of what is good or what is not good. It is the standard of the character of the holiness of God. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of Micah Steiner? No. That's not that high of a standard. Or the standard of Scott Abel. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, good teacher, why do you call me good? You don't know that I'm God. No one's good except God. He is in this moment by asking this question back to him, he is already chipping away at the very premise and the foundation of this man's opening question, the one question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes on. In verse 19, it says, in response to what must I do to inherit eternal life, he says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, what's strange about that? There's lots of things strange about that. On the one hand, first of all, what's strange here, especially as Lutheran Christians, the last person we would think who would point someone who asks about salvation and how they're saved and what they have to do to, earn, to gain eternal life, the last person we would expect to point them to the obedience of the law is Jesus. We would expect Jesus to point him not to the law, but to what? The gospel. Jesus, what are you doing here? Uh, don't you know uh, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and this is not of ourselves, it's a, it's a gift of God? Jesus, you need to read a little bit more St. Paul. You need to read a little Martin Luther, Jesus. Get your theology straight. It's strange. The other thing that's strange here is notice what commands he leaves out. Jesus says, do not murder, commit adultery, steal, false witness, fraud, honor your father and your mother. What Jesus leaves out are commandments one, two, and three. It's what we call the first table of the law, the first section of the Ten Commandments, which is all about our relationship with God. And then the second half is what he's focusing on here, which is all about our relationships on the horizontal plane, our relationships with one another. For whatever reason, Jesus mentions those and leaves out the first half. And then verse 20. Do you ever watch a TV show or a movie and you know the person, you know, they're about to open up the door to the room and they shouldn't go in that room and they're about to, and you're going, no, 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 don't go in there, don't do, this is what's happening to this man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the commands. Verse 20, 
The rich young ruler said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You see him breathing a massive sigh of relief. Oh my goodness, keep the commands. Is that all I have to do? Why didn't you say, I was worried all this time. All I have to do is to keep the commands of God. I've done that since my youth. I've done that ever since I was a little boy. (laughs) This is great. And Jesus doesn't argue with him on that point. That's what I would have done. I mean, Jesus could have said, oh, you've kept all the commands, have you? Oh, wow, that's amazing. You're the first person I've ever met who's kept all the commands, aside from myself. You've kept all the commands. You must have not have been there when I gave the Sermon on the Mount. I'll get you a cassette tape recording. The Sermon on the Mount, if you had been there, then you would have heard me describe how keeping the law and the commands of God isn't just the external actions that we do, but it's about the internal motivations of our hearts. And if you had been there at the Sermon on the Mount, you would have heard me explain that the commandments aren't just the negative, the do not, but there's also an implied positive, the things you are called to do. You say, do not steal. You say, I've never stolen anything. Wonderful. But have you always helped those in need? Have you given to everyone who is in need and given and given and just been radically generous with everyone? Do not murder. You've never murdered anyone. Well done. But have you ever had feelings of anger towards someone in your heart? Have you ever looked at someone and just kind of dismissed them? Ever used a mean word and called someone a nasty name? Have you always then helped the people and helped them prosper and protect them and defend them? And says, do not bear false witness. Okay, you've never lied against someone and tried to tried to uh, bear false witness against someone but have you always put the best construction on the situation have you always thought the best of other people and not only that but have you praised them and celebrated them and always spoken well of them? you've never gossiped or anything like that Jesus didn't do that He goes even deeper in verse 21. I love this. This is one of my favorite little insights into the heart of Jesus here, the way this opens. It says, Jesus looking at him loved him. How easy is it to go through life and not really look at someone or or notice someone? Jesus is looking at him. He knows him and he loves him. Then Jesus goes on in love and says to him, you lack one thing. You've kept all the commandments. Wonderful. There's only one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. You've kept all the commandments. Wonderful. There's one little thing Go sell everything you have, everything you have. Become impoverished, become poor, 
sell everything, give it away, and then come and follow me. And if you struggle doing that, rich young man, rich young ruler, if that's a struggle for you, then we're gonna see what other gods you might have before me. You say you've kept all the commandments, you've not even kept the very first one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, what is Jesus doing? He's not giving us 11th commandment which says thou shalt take a vow of poverty and indeed become impoverished and give it all away. He's not saying that. He's showing this man and he's showing us what? How we cannot do it ourselves and how radically and totally and absolutely dependent we are on him and his grace. That's the point. This man could not, he was rich, he was powerful, he was the rich young ruler, he had it all, and he needed this thing. He knew he didn't have it all. There was something was missing in his life, something he wanted to add to his life, something that he could do. Jesus here is challenging the entire premise of the question, what must I do? He's challenging the subject of that sentence, I, I, me, me. It's not about you, it's about me, Jesus is saying, in my love and my grace. That's what he's doing here. We are totally, totally dependent from beginning to end on his grace. Verse 22, the sad, one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the one that got away. And you can tell he knows he needs something. He's, he goes away sad. He knows there's emptiness inside of him. As we wrap up here, notice, remember, the context in which this entire face-to-face -face encounter takes place. Jesus has just picked up those little children up in his arms and bless them. And it is not an accident or a coincidence that this account of this powerful, rich, wealthy young man running up to Jesus, it's no accident that it happens right after Jesus takes the children up in his arms. Look at verse 13 if you're following along. It says that moms and dads were bringing children. Again, the Greek there is little children. You have to see six months old crawling. You have to see a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old. This is the age. You have to see the, the dirt all over their face and the snot coming out of their nose and the crusting you know how crusty their little noses get and whatever stink is coming off their first century diapers and they're toddling up there to Jesus and they don't know and look it says this is beautiful this is grace it says the moms and dads were bringing the children to Jesus it doesn't say you know the first the one-year-old wasn't like mother father I would like to go into the presence of the living Christ and receive a blessing from him today they didn't know what was going on they didn't know who Jesus was. They were brought to Jesus just as you were brought to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. 
And the disciples try to run them away, and Jesus gets so indignant and rebukes him. Let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then, of course, he says, truly, amen, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, that eternal life, like a child, like a little child, will by no means enter it. Look, the kingdom of God, Jesus saying, is not earned, it is received. And how is it simply received? Like a little child like a little toddler a little a little tiny one who knows they are in absolute need totally dependent and a mom or a dad to a little one is their world Jesus is saying this is our relationship finally how do we do that? I mean, some of you are so in control of things and you don't know what I've learned. And I have learned to live my life with my skills and my, I cannot, how can I give up control? How can I trust? How can I really trust that in Jesus? It's when you realize, when you see here, but see here, Jesus is the truer and greater rich young ruler. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler who left his sovereign throne of absolute power, laid aside his glory. The word of God tells us emptied himself and made himself nothing. He is the one who gave everything away to those in need. That's you and me. Was beaten, suffered, nailed to the cross in your place, our place because of his love for you. He is the one who gave it all away. He became poor that you might be rich. And the word here is, the one word that he uses is, is right, inherit. You inherit the kingdom of God. It is a gift, one for you, by the rich young ruler, the son of God, Jesus Christ, for you. So that, On that day when you see Jesus face to face, we can't think about that enough. We need to see that every day. What will that be like? We sing the song, I can only imagine. And I don't know, we're singing, praising, will we be able to speak at all? I don't know. Will we be asking questions on that day? I don't know. But I highly doubt we're going to be asking what questions or how questions. I always wondered this. I don't think we're going to be doing that. If we do ask a question of Jesus on that day, it's going to be a why question. As you see the nail marks in his hands, the question will be why? Why would you do all of that for me? Thank you, Jesus. To him alone be all the glory. Amen.